Okay, so that is a long passage and it's quite a tough passage. So we're going to have to work really hard tonight. Okay, I'm going to need you to work with me tonight. Before we move any further, I'm going to ask God to help us and to teach us from his word tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you work through your word tonight, that you speak to us, that you give us a sense of where we're standing in history, that we can live lives in light of your coming kingdom, lives that please you, lives um, alert, watchful, and prayerful. Amen. Uh, Do you ever get the sense that we're living in the midst of madness? Do you ever get the sense that sort of our current moment is this sort of dystopian moment, history? Uh, We live in a time when, in 2016, the Oxford word of the year was post-truth, I mean, what is that post-truth? Uh, 2017, uh, the headlines were taken over by fake news. And 2018, the Oxford Word of the Year was toxic. Uh, we live at a time when the political left and the political right just aren't listening to each other, but instead of listening, they're throwing mud on social media. We live at a time in which distrust in our politics has never been higher. Uh, we live in a time when uh, there's forecasted climate catastrophes, there's... Uh, uh, sort of this change of power from the, the west to the east. Uh, there's large-scale conflicts happening without our even knowing around the world. Do you ever get a sense that the time in which we're living in is sort of this dystopian moment of history? Now, I'm not sure if this sort of particular cultural moment is any more mad, chaotic than any other previous moment in history. But the question is for us as Christians, how should we live amid the madness? How should we live amid the madness? The passage we read from Luke 21 describes a particularly chaotic period for the people of Israel. So verse 5, you'll read that the disciples and Jesus reached Jerusalem. The disciples weren't from Jerusalem, they were from the north. And so when they reached the big smoke, the big sea, it was a big deal. They reached the center of the big city, the temple, and it took their breath away. The temple was covered in gold, marble, and bronze. They say that in daylight you couldn't look at the temple because of the shining. I'm not sure if that's true, but it was designed to be a boast to the nations that Israel was God's chosen people. And it was made to look indestructible. And so then in verse 6, in response to the, the disciples sort of having their breath taken away, Jesus says, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Good way to ruin a moment. Now, I'm sure the disciples sort of turned to each other and, and, and looked and, and said, or sort of thought to each other, surely he didn't just say that. But his words, Jesus' words, shouldn't uh, come as a surprise. You might remember that when we looked at Luke a couple of months ago, uh, we looked at chapter 19, verse 44 where Jesus predicts the downfall of the city of Jerusalem, and he does so with tears. You you might remember that that the greatest opponents to Jesus are the people who sort of make the temple tick, the the teachers of the the law, the the scribes, the the Pharisees. They were Jesus' most vicious opponents, and so because of their sort of self-concern, because of their lack of concern for the poor, because of their totally having forgotten God in their uh, work for God, Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. 
1944. And then just after that, he, he enters the temple and he clears the temple as a sort of an action in miniature of what's going to happen in the future. He clears the temple because of its corruption. For Jesus to say the temple is going to be destroyed isn't just a shame for the Israelites. It's the end of an era. It's the heart of national Israel being torn out of it. It's an entire religious system and way of viewing the world totally destroyed. And so for the Israelites and the disciples of Jesus, a particularly chaotic moment lay ahead of them. And shaken, I'm sure they were shaken, the disciples end up asking two questions in verse 7. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Now, they're the two questions that caused Jesus to to give this quite long answer as as we read. And Jesus' answer is really fascinating. Jesus, in answering their question, is talking about the destruction of the temple, but he's using language taken from the Old Testament that is usually used to describe the great day of the Lord. The Old Testament often paints a picture of what the day of the Lord will look like. It'll be the day when God uh, rids his creation of evil and sin and corruption. And, and the prophets especially paint this picture of what it will look like. They use sort of picture language. And Jesus sort of uses the language from that picture that the prophets use and, and uses it to describe this particular moment in Israel's history. He, he does it because he wants to imbue the moment in which the temple will be destroyed, AD 70, with theological significance. This moment is going to be big, theologically. God's going to leave. God, God's, God's, you've left God. God's going to leave the temple like he did back in Ezekiel. But he does it as well also, I think, for us too, who will read this later on. Let me try to give an analogy or or an illustration. So uh, when I was in Switzerland, there was always Alps on the horizon. There were always mountains on the horizon. Wherever you went, as long as the weather was good, you could see Alps. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is like the Alps in the distance. It's sort of in the future. It's going to happen in the future. But as you get closer to the Alps, you see that they're not just sort of all perfectly aligned like they look like from far away. When you get closer to the Alps, you see that they're staggered. Now, the day of the Lord is often the Alps in the future. But here, we're realising that the day of the Lord, although it remains in the future, there's a mountain quite close to us. And for the Israelites, the mountain that was right before them, in which he describes here in this passage, is the destruction of the temple. So the day of the Lord, which is in the future, which is in the future for us too, the big day of the Lord, the the day of the Lord when sin will be done away with, is in the future. But here, Jesus is talking about this sort of this day of the Lord that is is like the future day of the Lord, but it's just one mountain. Does that make sense? Okay. So the question that Jesus is answering here is how ought the disciples live in light of the Alp? That's just before them, the day of the Lord, that's just before them. How should they live? But because we live in a time waiting for the day of the Lord too, the Alps in the future, we also learn from Jesus' answer. So how ought we to live now in light of the future day of the Lord? That's the question that we're thinking about tonight. So they ask the question, 
the disciples, the two questions. And then in verse 8, Jesus begins the answer. Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. So at around the time of Jesus, many within the nation of Israel were ready for revolution. They'd been under the thumb of Roman rule for too long and they knew that God's kingdom would reign over all the kingdoms. And so they wanted to bring it about. They wanted to do it via revolution. And so there were people claiming to be Messiahs, the Christs. They were claiming to be him, the long-promised Messiah that Jesus, we believe, was. But they were claiming to be the Messiah that would lead the nation in this revolution, in this military revolution that would get rid of Roman rule and they'd establish the nation of Israel forever. That's what they were trying to do. And Jesus said, when you, when you hear them say, I'm he, when, they, when you hear them say, the time's come, do not follow them. Now, for us today, we, we don't have many people claiming to be the Messiah uh, there are some people like, I think, Joseph Smith, a junior of Latter-day Saints fame, who sort of claimed to have a special revelation that sort of goes against the scriptures and he wants people to follow him. I mean, I don't think many of us attempted in that way to follow someone like uh, him, Joseph Smith. But who are we tempted to follow that would lead us from, uh, the, uh, off the way of Jesus? That's the question we need to think about. Who would... Who would tempt us to, to leave following Jesus uh, to, to, uh, for, for a, a better way of life, a, a better answer to life. I'm not sure who that might be for you. Um, I know for, for many young men, uh, that there, are, there are people who are sort of taking Jordan Peterson and just going with him all the way, as, as if he's sort of, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he, as if he's the guy to follow. I'm not saying he's bad or good or whatever, I'm not sure who it might be for you. Who, who's, who's sort of calling the shots in your life? Who's, who's giving you wisdom for life? Who's um, giving you what you think are the answers to the problems of life? I'm not sure who that might be for you. It might be a political party. But Jesus is saying, don't let anyone or any movement take you from following me. You might be in a political party and a member and an active member. Fantastic. Jesus wants us to be lights in the world and to be active politically. But if it means swallowing something hook, line and sinker and forgetting Jesus or being you know, full on for a particular person or movement and being half-hearted for Jesus, well, that's the danger. Do not follow anyone but Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Let's move on. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Now, as I was saying, tensions between the Romans and the Jews was, was getting really hot. The nation of Israel, uh, the sort of area in which they live, was becoming a tinderbox for revolution. And in the 60s, 80s, 60s, the Romans increased the taxes. And so there were some random attacks by some of the Israelites on Roman citizens. And that's what sparked the first uh, Roman and Jewish war in AD 60. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. Now, the, the Israelites living in Rome, in, in Roman um, territory, were a minority people. You can imagine how scary it would be when 
when all you see around you are these soldiers in uniform and you're a minority people and some of, some of those amongst you are doing these things to, to aggravate the ruling authority. It'd be scary. How are they going to respond? Are they going to clamp the fist down? And Jesus says, do not be frightened. Now for us, I think it's really easy to get a little bit caught up in the whole dystopian future thing. I think it's really easy to get caught up, especially, I think, in our generation um, and the one below me, to get caught up in the whole um, sort of climate catastrophe thing. And um, uh, it looks as though the science is clear, it's happening, and it's, it's, it's not good. But Jesus still says to us, do not be frightened. I'm not sure what it might be for you. It might not be that. That might not sort of register on your radar at all. It might be t- something totally different. I mean, for instance, the whole, um, the whole sexual values of our society are, are acidic to relationships. It might be that that causes you to think, what's the future for my children going to be? And Jesus says, do not be frightened. And why shouldn't we be frightened? Well, he says um, to disciples that these things, that the wars that he speaks of, these things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. The point is that there's a plan to this. There's, there's someone in control, even though it doesn't look like there's control, any control, it's chaotic. The disciples are to trust that there's a plan. These, these things must happen first. Verse 12. But before all this... They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Wow. There's a promise. So ahead of the day in which this, this, this day of the Lord is, is coming upon Israel, there's a promise there that these disciples in which Jesus is speaking, they will be hated because of him. Now, whenever someone says that to become a Christian means, you know, a breezy life, and a bank account balance that's just going one way, like that's just not true. Christianity is not that. Christianity is not necessarily, or is not blessings or promises of blessings in the present. Jesus says you'll be seized, persecuted, hated by friends and family, put to death. And knowing that this is happening as we speak, that there are, there are Christians who continue to testify to Jesus despite severe persecution should make us look at our own heart, wonder whether we would survive this. Now, it totally could happen that in the next 50 years, some of us here will be tested for our faith. And I'm a, I'm a Christian leader, and we're moving into potentially sort of grayer weather in our society. And I've had to ask 
Would I be willing to, to stand up, even if it cost me? Uh, there's a classic Christian allegory called uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. It's a fantastic read. It's, um, it's the Christian journey put into an allegory. And so Christian, who's the main character, is on his way to the celestial city. That's his destination. And he sort of just started his journey. He's, he's reached the, the top of the hill of difficulty when he meets fearful and distrust. And they're running towards him. So Christian asks, guys, what's the matter? It's not guys, it's sirs. Sirs, what's the matter? You're running the wrong way. Uh, fearful answered that they were going to the celestial city They'd got up the great hill, but the further we go, the more danger we meet, so we turned and we're going back. Yes, said Mistrust, for just lies ahead of us, or you, a couple of lines. Whether sleeping or waking, we're not sure, but all we could think about was how they could presently pull us to pieces. Christian said, you make me afraid, but where shall I fly to be safe? If I go back to my own country, it's prepared for destruction, I'll certainly perish there. If I get to the celestial city, I'm sure to be safe there. I must venture. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and everlasting life beyond it. I'll yet go forward. And so mistrust and fearful went that way and Christian went this way. And so if we're going to go forwards in our journey with Jesus, Jesus gives us two comforts. And one command. Two comforts, one command. So verse 15, the first comfort. When you're standing before councils under pressure to give testimony to me, to Jesus. Jesus says, I will give you words and wisdom. And none of your adversaries will be able to resist. That none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, it's not only that Jesus will give words and wisdom, but the Holy Spirit too. So the promise is that in those moments of pressure, you can be absolutely sure that Jesus, the King of all creation, is with you, giving you words, giving you wisdom. And it happened in Acts, uh, Luke's companion volume. It happened in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was speaking to the crowds. He was full of the Spirit. He spoke boldly for Jesus. Then it happened in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, um, just before he was stoned, uh, was filled with the Spirit, speaking of Jesus, witnessing to Jesus. So that's the first promise. The presence of God, words and wisdom. The second comfort is uh, verse 18. Well, it doesn't start so comforting. Everyone will hate you because of me. <laughs> but not a hair of your head will perish. That's a really interesting promise. Because the disciples, as he says, will die. How can Jesus say that not a hair of your head will perish? Now, what I, what I think he's saying here is that even though the persecutors claim to have life and death in their hands, they're sort of hoarding it over you, that's just not true. The God of life, of which the disciples are witnessing to, he holds life and death in his hands. He holds life. Life comes from him. And what his promise is, is you are safe in my hands. You are safe. If you're in the hands of God, protected by him, then there's no better place to be. Not a hair of your head will perish, ultimately. That's 
two comforts and one command. Verse 19, stand firm and you'll win life. Stand firm and you'll win life. Two years ago, Arian and I went to Uluru. Did you go recently, Sarah? Uluru? No. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> Uluru is massive. And it's been there for, they say, 600 million years. Now, Jesus is telling us, in our, in our obedience to him, he's telling us to be like Uluru. That's the image I want you to have. You ought to be rooted in Christ. Unmovable. He wants us to be like Uluru in our following him. We're not finished. We've got a bit more to go. Uh, moving to verse 20. And the temple's destruction finally comes into view. When you, see that, uh, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that's been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people, these people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What Jesus is describing here happened about 37 years after he spoke. It is complete carnage. Uh, a historian who was present and living during the time, Josephus, a guy called Josephus, he describes this scene. He says, While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people were caught by them and slaughtered. There was no pity for age, no regard, accorded to rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike were killed. And such was the height of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city <coughs> seemed ablaze. Jesus had talked about this in chapter 19. And what did he do when he spoke about this? He cried. What does any emotionally intact person do face to face with war and, and needless loss of life? They shed tears. Jesus was torn to pieces that God's own people, the Israelites, were rejecting him. Jesus was God come amongst his people. Jesus was torn up that when the, the people of God, the, the, um, the Pharisees, the, the people who called themselves holy and religious, serving God, when they, see, when they saw signs of the kingdom, the healing of the, the blind and the, the deaf and, and the, the lifting of the poor, they didn't like it. They didn't like the taste of God's kingdom. Jesus was torn up that when he said, love your enemies, they weren't convinced. They wanted to fight against their enemies. And we need to remember, in all this carnage, that God hates the death of anyone. We read that in Ezekiel. But corruption and human sinfulness can't go on forever. And so the temple, which had been uh, come totally, totally self-serving and forgetful of its reason for being, forgetful of its serving God and the poor, was destroyed. But the thing is that, like I said before, there's Alps in the distance. This is the Alp that we see close up, but there's Alps in the distance. And the truth is, and this is really hard to talk about in our world, that it's under judgment. This world is under judgment. And just as we saw in Jesus' time, 
All we have to do is look out and watch the news to see that corruption and sin is just as rife now as it always has been. And the Bible is really clear. The day of the Lord will come. That, that, that day in the future, the Alps in the distance, that, that picture that the Old Testament prophets painted, the day of justice is going to come for the world. And the, and the really uh, hard thing to talk about is that the injustice and sin isn't just out there. We love to box people into categories, the good, the bad, but it's not true. A famous Christian writer, you've probably heard this before, he was answering a question in the newspaper, what's wrong with the world? And he sent an answer into the newspaper and all it said was, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Jesus is really clear that the human heart is corrupt. It's out of a person's heart evil comes and humanity has become unhealthy at the core. And we're all in the same basket. Let's keep moving on. There is hope. Let's keep moving on. Verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When, they, uh, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now this is where the Old Testament images become packed, packed in. There are different ways of interpreting these particular verses, actually the whole passage, but I'm going to tell you what I think it's saying. So, um, in Daniel chapter 7, the reading we had read first, the chapter is all about four beasts. We didn't read about that. That's before the reading started for us. It's about four beasts and they're crazy, scary beasts. Um, they're sort of beyond human description, even though they're described. Like, they're scary. They're scary beasts. And they repre- they're representative of really strong nations back in Daniel's time. The, the, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians. And they're represented, uh, represented as beasts because... What happens when you stop fearing God as a nation, and I think individually, you sort of lose your humanity. You become beastly. And they're the nations surrounding Israel. And then the reading we had described the Ancient of Days setting up his judgment throne. He's full of glory. He's got books open before him. He's got a a multitude with him. The thing is, is that uh, these nations didn't fear God, but they should have because God is judging them and God has been watching them. The ancient days has come to judge. And then, in the reading, you, you heard of this son of man figure. This son of man figure just means human. This human figure. So he's got his humanity intact. That is, he fears God. He lives as a human should live. And this figure approaches the throne of the ancient of days on clouds from, on clouds from heaven, or cloud, the clouds of heaven. He approaches the throne of the ancient of days... And when he gets there, the Ancient of Days gives him all power, dominion, and authority. 
So that's why in verse 27, it mentions or it says, at this time, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What Jesus is saying is, using really sort of um, language full of imagery coming from the Old Testament, he's saying that when the temple is destroyed, you'll know that my words have come true. I will have been vindicated. I am that son of man figure that Daniel spoke of. I am that figure that approaches the ancient days and is given by God, Father, all power, authority and dominion. Now that statement comes with a thorn in its tail. For Jesus to say he's the son of man is saying he's man. He's saying that he is the human that God has put all things under his power. But he's also saying that the Pharisees who would swear that they're God's people, they'd put their house on it. He's saying that they're more like the monsters, the beasts of the nations. God's people had become like the nations that the Israelites had hated in the past. That's a sting in its tail. That's hard to hear. So I could go into why I think that that particular passage from verse 25 to um, 28 is talking about the destruction of the temple versus the second coming of Jesus. Um, I'll say that, I'll say quickly that I think that that's the case because in Daniel, the the Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days. I'm sorry, this is the details. I'll just quickly go through this. The Son of Man is approaching the, the Ancient of Days uh, from earth to heaven. He's going in that direction, not from heaven to earth. And Jesus also says in verse 32 that truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Okay, so I'm sorry if I've lost you. Um, the point of all this is to say that at the destruction of the temple, this sort of first day of the Lord, the Son of Man will be vindicated. And that's also true for the final day of the Lord. Obviously, when God comes to rid his world of evil and sin and corruption, which is our hope, by the way, we don't like that stuff. Um, when that happens, the Son of Man will be vindicated as being the king on his throne. That we worship now, We don't see him, but we love him. But one day he'll be vindicated as being that human being that God has given all power, dominion and authority. All right, so we're nearly there. Nearly there. So verse 34, Jesus finishes with some instructions to his disciples and us. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will come on you suddenly like a trap. Now, I think this is such concise advice. There really is only two options. We can live for this day, alert for it, or we'll just get swept up with the crowd. There really are only two options. Living alert for the day or getting swept away by the anxieties of life or by this sort of general malaise of life. Just life's there to enjoy. Drunkenness, carousing. Alert. Or anything else really in verse 36 be always on the watch and pray that you 
may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Always on watch. I was going for a walk yesterday with Laura, and I sat down because she was asleep and I was tired and it was beautiful. And then I saw this dog just sit down plonk in front of me and he was just looking in one direction. He was looking in one direction. His owner was in the conversation, had a tennis ball in his hand and he was just watching that ball the whole time. I'm going to say something you're never going to hear in a sermon again. Be like a dog. Be like a dog, that dog, who's waiting for his owner to come. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may stand firm before the Son of Man. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, you are so powerful and majestic, we don't even comprehend it to hardly a degree. Father, we pray that you keep us watching as we wait for your day to come. When the Lord Jesus, your son, returns to wipe your creation from sin and evil. We pray that you can keep us watching, prayerful, keep us following your son, keep us fixated on him. Keep us witnessing to your son, Jesus, no matter what the pressure. Help us trust that we are in your hands, whatever may come upon us. Through Christ. Amen.